Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast here on the Raised with Jesus podcast series. My name is Jeremy Lightning. I'm here with my co-host, Michael Zarling. And our guest today, we just realized, is the first returning guest we've ever had on this podcast. You may remember him from such great hits as the Youth Rally last summer in Tennessee. Actually, it wasn't hits. It's just one hit. It was all of the uh, teenagers from Water of Life. And maybe, was there another one from First Evan? Someone may have snuck in there. Yeah. But uh, it was our Water of Life teens. It is my son, Gabriel Lightning. Welcome, Gabe. Hey, Dad. Thanks. Thanks for having me on again. Hey, so, hey Dad. What about your the other guy that's sitting here? Yeah, all right. Uh, hey, thanks, Spiritual Dad, for having me on. <laughs> all right, well, thank you. Uh, we brought Gabe on today because uh, there's going to be an awful lot of Mandalorian talk on this episode, and uh, I do know that... Um, there may be some of our listeners out there who are not the premier Star Wars fans that uh, Pastor Zarling thinks we all should be. And for that reason, uh, I thought it would be good to have a younger voice. I, I actually saw the most recent episode of The Mandalorian with my son Gabe, and uh, he knows a thing or two about that. And he also knows a thing or two about the, the small catechism in the Bible and uh, has some good thoughts on God's Word whenever we have family devotion. So uh, that's why we thought he would be a good guest today. Right, because we weren't able to get a guest. Uh, the couple of people that we had asked were not able to come on. Uh, I asked Din Jaren to come on, uh, but he couldn't. Do you know the actor's name? Yeah, but I can never remember the guy's name uh, off the top of my head. I'm going to look it up now. Uh, and Din Djarin play is the name of the Mandalorian, so... Because we couldn't get him because he's busy filming The Mandalorian. We got Gabe because we wanted, I wanted to talk about The Mandalorian because I saw some spiritual insights, especially fitting with the gospel lesson and the theme for this, this coming Sunday on uh, Water for the Thirsty. So he, like Jeremy said, even if you're not a Star Wars fan or you haven't seen The Mandalorian yet. Uh, Pedro Pascal. Yep. That's Google's right. Uh, that even if you haven't seen it, I think you can pick up some things, uh, allusions to Christianity. Uh, I used to write for Bread for Beggars, and I had written a number of things. I used to write about art and Christianity, and then I I took that over and and write, wrote about Star Wars and Christianity and The Mandalorian and Christianity. So one of the things that I saw in the first episode of season three is you've got this young Mandalorian who's got to be about 13 years old that's standing in the water and he's making his vows. Uh, Gabe, what does that sound like to you in Christianity of a young man who's about 13 years old who's making his vows? Oh, gee, Pastor, I don't know. Uh, couldn't be confirmation maybe? It could exactly be confirmation. Do you remember your confirmation vows standing in the water yeah and then a big sea creature came up behind you then yeah another ship came in and blew up the whole church well before those parts just the vows yeah it was a little boring before then but yeah i, I can't say i remember them too well <laughs> you 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 can say that you 
You remember making vows? In oh front yeah, of... I mean, I remember making them. I just don't remember like them, like the words verbatim. So, do you do you remember what kind of questions we asked Jeremy of the young confirmants? Oh, that's a good question because I was the one sitting behind him to back him up oh, yeah. in case he messed up. Um, well, that was for the examination. The examination, but for the for the confirmation, it's it's making th- promises like. Do you do you believe in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you recite the creed? Do you reject the devil and all of his lies and empty promises? Do you believe everything you've learned from Martin Luther's small catechism, the you, Lutheran you confessions? Promise to suffer everything, even death, rather than give up what you have learned. Right. Yeah, and that, that's the big one. And when I talk to the confirmands, I and I I am very pointed with that. I said that's a really big promise. Uh, are you sure you're willing to do that, uh, to suffer all, even death? And then another promise is to make faithful use of the means of grace, word and sacrament. So, Gabe, do you know what kind of things the a young person becoming a Mandalorian is vowing to do? Uh, kind of the same things. He's definitely willing to lay down his life for the cause. Um, let's see. He's... Of course, willing, he's promising to keep all the rules that he's promising, as any cre- as any creator promise should be. Um, vowing to fight against all the evils that the man- that the Mandalorian are fighting against, kind of like what a young Christian is doing when he's getting confirmed. Um, <clears throat> hmm, what are some? I don't know. What are some he's promising things? never to take off his helmet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like I'm is... promising never to take off my hair. <laughs> Yeah, and, and Jeremy is right. That faction of the Mandalorians, they vow never to take off their mask, which is a big part of that episode because Din Djarin, the star of the Mandalorian, he has taken off his mask to show it to Grogu, you know, the little child that he has now adopted to train to be a young Mandalorian. A.K.A. Baby Yoda. Exactly. When, yeah, when, when will the show just canonically say Baby Yoda? I I think it should happen sometime soon. Well, we don't know if it's Yoda's baby. <laughs> yeah, but like that's what like everyone ever has called him Baby Yoda, and I it's got to happen sometime soon that the show writers are just gonna throw out the name Baby Yoda as opposed to Grogu because no one like no one calls him Grogu no except except for you maybe. But <laughs> <laughs> all right, it, it, do you think maybe that sooner or later it's gonna come out that he's actually related to Yoda? I don't know about that. It could be because, as far as I know, Yoda, like Yoda's species, is a dying species. Like there's, you don't see many Yodas walking around. Is there a name for that species? I don't know. I did see a female of the Yoda, we call it Yoda species, in that, that would have been a graphic novel. I don't know how much those are canonical. Yeah, yeah it depends on the graphic. Depends on the graphic novel, but she she wasn't very attractive. <laughs> Well, I, I think if we asked ladies if uh, Yoda or Grogu is attractive, they probably would. Yes. They, well, I, actually, the, mom thinks that Grogu is pretty cute, but I don't know if she would say attractive. <laughs> but what I think is interesting is uh, in one of the first three prequels, I remember seeing Yoda uh, do a, a laser uh, a lightsaber sword fight. And, uh, and so we've seen a Yoda species do the Jedi type of moves. Um, what I think is interesting is if uh, we're eventually going to see Grogu do Mandalorian type of fighting. 
Right. And, and that's one of the things that's interesting in that uh, if you only watched season two of The Mandalorian and then started picking up with, uh, with season three and then skipped uh, the book of Boba Fett, you're wondering how did Grogu, Baby Yoda, get back with a Mandalorian because at the end of season two, Grogu is rescued by Luke Skywalker flies in. And then we have to watch the last three episodes of the book of Boba Fett Maybe only the last three episodes. Yeah, you don't, <laughs> that's true. The first part of the same people, maybe not. Yeah. Uh, but what's interesting is Grogu goes to train to be a uh, a Jedi with Luke Skywalker, and he gives him the option. He can choose. Is he going to choose Yoda's lightsaber and become a Jedi and be the first, uh, uh, first disciple of Yoda? Luke Skywalker's school, or does he, uh, or does he become a Mandalorian and choose the Beskar uh, chainmail that has been made for him? He has this little uh, outfit that is a Mandalorian armor, and by choosing that, he would be rejecting the Jedi training. Then the right. empty lies and promises that the Jedi offer. <laughs> And and if you're a fan, wait a minute! You just compared the Jedi to the devil. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it was the first thing that came to mind. If you are a fan of Lord of the Rings, you would recognize the chainmail looks very much like the mithril uh, that is it is worn uh, in that as well. All right, but I wanted to really talk about Episode Two because in Episode Two, then. The Mandalorian flies to the to Mandalore, which has been destroyed. There's a bombed, turned into glass. But, and that he had to do that because his his sect of the Mandalorians. The what's the name of the the lady that's like the armor smith? Let me look that one up too. You, I, you, I'm you have that one on the top end. Uh, well, anyway, the the leader of his uh, sect says that um, she's just the, the armorer. The armorer. Yeah. Okay. The armorer tells him the only he he's well the name of the first episode was the apostate. So he's considered an apostate of his sect because he took off his helmet to show Grogu his face and uh, then the armorer told him the only way you can redeem yourself and and become a Mandalorian again is if you go and bathe in the living waters of the Beskar mines on the planet of Mandalore. So we're coming back from a little bit of some uh, microphone mishaps with our recording here, uh, but uh, we thought that the best place to jump right back in was to introduce you to this character in The Mandalorian called Bo-Katan. Now, uh, if you've seen in some of the other episodes before this, uh, she was a Mandalorian royalty. Uh, she belonged to the Mandalorian royal family that uh, ruled on that planet, and uh, she was of the mindset that uh, Din Djarin's people, uh, their Mandalorians, are, are a split-off group that are way too strict about keeping your helmets on. And so she can take her helmet off and put it on at will. Uh, but uh, she also was very jaded against Din Djarin because he managed to... Uh, how did that happen? Defeat her when, when there was that special lightsaber? The, the black saber, yeah. Uh, so the, the Moff, the, the general, he had the black saber, and the only way that you can rule Mandalorian, or 
the planet Mandalore and all the Mandalore people is to have this special black saber, which was first forged by a Mandalorian that was also a Jedi. And then he rode a Mythosaur and he was able to bring all the factions of the Mandalorians together. Otherwise, they always fought each other. And now they were united as one common people. So because Din Djarin defeated Moff, what was his name? Moff Gideon, I believe. Yeah, it was Moff Gideon. Moff Gideon. Uh, he now get, came into possession of this Black Saber, uh, which didn't work out so well for Bo-Katan because uh, she was of the royal family and she, she wanted to be the one who took that saber. But uh, in episode one of season three, she uh, is in her Mandalorian castle. And I thought that was kind of neat. Uh, Din Djarin is always introducing Grogu to Mandalorian culture, and he was flying in uh, to her planet and and pointed out to Grogu that is a Mandalorian castle, and um, and but then she was very skeptical and and kind of cynical about uh, the the whole idea of him getting redeemed by bathing in those uh, waters under the mines of Mandalore. Yeah, and and with that special uh, dark saber, uh, dark. Din Djarin tries to give it to Bo-Katan, but you can't give it to someone else. You have to win it in battle. And that's how he he got it, by beating Moff Gideon. So you can't just give it to someone. Uh, But yeah, one of the things too, what was interesting is you were talking about Din Djarin teaching Grogu the ways of the Mandalorian. He was showing him about the different... uh, Planets in the system. Different planets, how to get from one place to another, because as Din Djarin goes to Mandalore, uh, he is captured, and he sends Grogu back to go get uh, Bo-Katan, and Bo-Katan rescues him so that he can then go be bathed in the living waters underneath the, uh, the mines of Mandalore so he can be redeemed, because as you said in episode one, he was called the apostate. So, Gabe, can you tell us about the two ways in the episode that um, Bo-Katan, it actually happened twice. She rescued him twice. What was that all about? So, first time was Grogu actually going to go get Bo-Katan to help uh, Mandalorian get get out of the robot trap that he got caught in. Um, Did it all by himself, and then she came and got him out of that. Um, And then, later on, when... The Mandalorian initially fell all fell all the way down into the bottom of the living waters. She quickly jumped in and saved him. Oh, it took a few seconds, but you know it was deep. So, and you and I were, we were talking about this beforehand. And the reason I wanted to talk about these episodes, especially to today, as this Sunday's theme is uh, about water to uh, was it water to the thirsty, and it's about living waters, as Jesus tells the Samaritan woman. You know, if you drink this water, you will live. You will never be thirsty again. And I see in this episode going to the living waters is Din Djarin is being baptized. He's getting rid of what he had done previously to make him an apostate of taking off his mask and then being able to be a Mandalorian again. Do you guys see that the same way? I I could see it the same way, but... Well, you even made a good comparison with the old Adam being drowned, that he, he, he was definitely being drowned by whatever caused him to fall all the way down in those waters. Yeah. Now, th- there's some dots that are like just connected in my head. When you mentioned that Bo-Katan was the 
daughter of the king. I I really hate to say this, but like I feel like she's if we're going by these like you know scriptural references, she's kind of lining up to be kind of like Jesus or like this the Trinity because she's the daughter of the king coming from you said from the house and line of the king, and I immediately thought of from the house and line of David. Okay, and then she jumped in and saved, uh, you know the sorry drowning Mando from the waters. Being the Holy Spirit, saving okay. us from our sins. Yeah. Uh, now, I think there's a couple of things where the analogy to baptism falls short. One of them is, um, and I think this is the most important one, it was definitely something that the Mandalorian had to do right. as, a, as a work, that he was, he was trying to redeem himself. He, it, it wasn't, with, with Christian baptism, baptism comes to you. And it, it does the work on you without your choosing. Or if you do choose it, it's because the Holy Spirit previously put faith in your heart. Um, but then the other thing is, I'm kind of wondering when they keep talking about living waters, and then there's this big creature under the water that's pulling him, maybe pulling him down into it, if there isn't supposed to be uh, some kind of a, a darker side to the living waters, like the waters are alive with creatures that are gonna go get you yeah they don't say why it's called the living waters that big creature is the mythosar uh and and i don't want to push the analogy too far of baptism but i do i do think it's interesting i've been reading a lot of c.s lewis the chronicles of narnia for another book i'm working on and you know i always thought that you know Aslan and so forth, those are analogies. Aslan is an analogy to Christ. And C.S. Lewis is very clear. He is not an analogy. It's a, it's a supposal. It's a supposal. So if, if Christ was man here on earth to save humanity, suppose what Christ, the Son of God, would look like if he was at another planet, a planet where animals talked and so forth. It was a supposal. And there are a lot of allusions as I'm reading through the the Chronicles, I'm halfway through, that you don't push the analogy too far, but you see allusions. And that's what I'm just talking about here is uh, as Christian, because every myth, and this is what C.S. Lewis was great at, and it's really what changed him uh, to start searching Christianity for the Holy Spirit to convert him because he had been born a Christian, well, baptized and converted as a Christian, but then as a young man, he gave it up, became an atheist, later on an agnostic, and later on converted to Christianity. And one of the things that was used for his Christianity was that he saw every myth, every myth that uh, is in our world, and he is really into myths. Everything had its start in Scripture and and the and God, the true God. Not the, and every all the false gods came from that, and that's what I'm seeing here is uh, just some allusions to Christianity of confirmation, discipleship, and so baptism. What you're what you're describing is that people have a natural knowledge of God and of the need to be saved, and that we express it in stories. And this is one modern way that a story is expressed of of some kind of natural knowledge of God. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it because John Favreau, who I think is a great director of the, and writer for The Mandalorian, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but like you said, Jeremy, there's something there that he knows about that he's, going, that he's writing these things that definitely have allusions to Christianity so strongly. Well, I just want to bring up one other point that... Um, and this is part of the reason we asked Gabe to be the guest today. 
Uh, last night in family devotion, we're going through the book of Job. And uh, last night we were reading chapter chapters 25 and 26. And this is uh, one of the things that Job said to his friends when they were trying to tell him that he must have done something really bad for God to punish him like this uh, with all of his hardships. Uh, and in chapter 26, verse 5, it says, The spirits of the dead writhe in pain underneath the waters along with those who dwell there. Um, and uh, Gabe kind of stopped and paused on that because he knew that we were going to talk about the latest Mandalorian episode in this podcast recording today. And he said, ooh, you should bring that one up tomorrow because uh, that was kind of like the Mandalorian writhing under the waters as he's being pulled under. And I want to add another thing to that that I just thought of as I was looking further down in chapter 26. Um, It says, The pillars of heaven's shake, they are stunned by God's rebuke. By his power, he calmed the sea. By his understanding, he smashed Rahab. And Rahab is actually a name for um, the power of the sea, or it's like a big... Uh, mythological sea creature, or you, you could even say uh, sea dinosaur, like the, what mm. what archaeolog- um, um, paleontologists today would say was uh, the creatures that evolved over millions of years in a previous era um, actually did coincide with human existence on Earth, and they knew about these great sea creatures, and they kind of gave the name to them Rahab, and that kind of makes me think of... The Mythosaur? Yeah. Oh. So, and it goes back to your point before of people having this natural knowledge of there are these great forces of evil out there. Nature is against us. This the world is in chaos, and there are these beasts that are attacking us, and we need a hero to tame these beasts for us. And so you've got that even in uh, the Old Testament, uh, but also in concepts of it in uh, in the Mandalorian. Good point, Gabe. Yeah, I, I don't know. I it's it was just it was also kind of fresh on my mind. So it's just a quick connection I made. All right. Well, sh- should we get into the actual scripture lessons? <laughs> Since we've we've been talking about a lot of allusions to scripture. Sure. The gospel is from John chapter four, beginning with verse five. So he, Jesus, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the piece of land Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Then Jesus, being tired from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, she said, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his animals. Jesus answered her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give him will never be thirsty again, ever again. Rather, the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water bubbling up to eternal life. Sir, give me this water, the woman said to him, so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. 
Jesus told her, Go, call your husband and come back here. I have no husband, the woman answered. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say, I have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews insist that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will not worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming, and now is here, when the real worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, the one called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus said to her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So Gabe, why do you think it was a surprise, especially to Jesus' disciples, that they traveled through Samaria? Well, at the time, and maybe still, I don't know, uh, Jews and Samaritans hated each other, as it says in the text. You know. Yeah, and so what would they normally do? Uh, do you know what they would do to get a, to go would, from the south to the north or north would, to the south? I mean, I don't know exactly, but I imagine they'd just like take a huge detour going straight around Samaria so that they don't even like touch the land. They don't want anything to do with it. For not having known that for sure, you made a very good guess. That is <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah. what they did. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And what's interesting, verse 4, John writes that they had to go. Uh, through Samaria, which is, I think, very interesting. The Holy Spirit inspires John to write, they had to. It was it was God, you know, it was a divine appointment that Jesus had with this woman. Uh, Jeremy, Jesus had to go through Samaria, not because it was the only route, because it wasn't, but because his father had a mission for him to accomplish them there. Uh, you just recently returned a call. Can you tell our listeners like what was really interesting and intriguing about that call and yet what you felt you had to stay here at at Shoreland? Uh in what reference to the text is this? Well, how he had to go to to Samaria. He had had to be there. You know, I just think of I think of for you and I as ministers how we with the divine call, we just feel we have to be you know, for me here, and I've returned calls to stay here, mm-hmm. and how you, you've returned a call, how you feel you have have to be here as opposed to your the call you just had. Um, I struggle with the word have to because um, Jesus says there's only one thing that is necessary, and that is that you, you hear God's word. That is, that's the one thing needful, he told Martha. And, uh, and so when, and then to another thing, one comes to mind of uh, John the Baptist saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. And Jesus doesn't talk about compelling or forcing. He says, let's talk about what's appropriate or what's proper. And, and that's that I, that you baptize me today. And so I, I think when it comes to our decisions too, um, there are very few things that uh, we should use the word must or should ideally we should only use the word should or must or need very sparingly. 
because there's there's a lot of when it's a divine command, we know it's God's will. When yeah, right? when God when God says so, uh, He has ordained it. Then then that must happen. Uh, but but even He is not bound. He there's nothing forcing Him to do anything other than His own word. Um, so I guess I guess when it came to my call, I I would just say um, that uh, I saw a lot more reason to continue teaching at Shoreland than I did to go and become a pa- pastor in the parish again. Yeah, and, and I, I appreciate the way you said that, you know, that uh, if you would have taken that call to be a home missionary, well, God would have blessed you there. And, you know, I think of the same thing with my call. Uh, I was just called, well, about five months ago and returned that call to go to Juno, which is a congregation that my wife Shelley grew up at, and I would have been her dad's pastor. And with that call, I told the pastor and the president that uh, I would like a special perk of getting a four-wheeler to drive through through Dodge County. And the only reason I said that is because I think it's so hilarious that my father-in-law drives his four-wheeler, uh, his ATV, to church. And it's legal in Dodge County. And they all got the joke so that when I returned the call, the pastor said to me, uh, I'm, I'm disappointed, Mike. I guess I have to return that ATV we ordered for you. I don't, Gabe. What did you think of the call process? And uh, as the as a child in the family, what were your opinions about it? Uh, for the one that we just had, it was I, like as soon as I saw what the stakes are, I knew immediately like that that's not happening. You're not going to take that. What do you mean the stakes? Like I saw, I all right. Like you just said, I shouldn't say stakes because it's not nothing. Should or ha- shouldn't have whatever. Um, I just... It's a, it's a good way to put it. Okay, but, you know. What, I, what were the stakes? Uh, the stakes were staying at Shoreland. Uh, it would mean you continue doing what you're doing, and you're, I, yeah, you're one of the only, one of the few religion teachers, so you're pretty vital. Um, but if you went to the other congregation, you would leave, you would make a big hole that people are already trying to fill at other spots, that means there'd have to be more shuffling around of teachers to fill your hole, and I mean, it would be for it would it would obviously be for a good cause because you're you're going to a new congregation that doesn't have a pastor, but um, you also I think you you brought up with me once that uh, there's a decent chance they might try calling one more time, but after that they'll just try to nab someone from the seminary, so oh. I just knew that how important you are at Shoreland and how good of a job you do there that it I just can't see you taking it. And we we've only been here for like 3 years. You don't want to you don't want to move again, do you? Like, I wasn't looking forward to that, but uh, yeah. thank you for that wonderful uh, thing that you said about me. I'll make sure to pay yeah. you that $5 I promised That's you. Right. Later. <laughs> yeah, and and maybe when I asked the question initially, uh, Jeremy is just to say Jesus had a mission there. And we have our own missions. That would, that would have been a better way to phrase it as opposed to had to be there. I want to ask you, Jeremy, too, instead of Gabe with this one, why was it a surprise that the Samaritan woman went to the well during the sixth hour? Because usually uh, women would want to go to the wells to get the water in the cooler parts of the day, uh, either the evening or early in the morning. And so um, she's obviously going at a time when she knows that other people won't be there. So are you, it was interesting reading through the EHV notes preparing for this. 
that I always assumed it, and I, I think you are too, that this is the sixth hour according to Jewish time, which would be noon, but the which would be the time you don't want to go to the well because it's hot. And that's why I always thought that she'd be going there, like you said, to avoid all of the other women. But the EHV says this could also be according to Roman time, which would put it in the evening. And then that's the time that women would go to the well. And that's why Jesus is there in the evening. Just just interesting, something I had never thought of before. So then, Gabe, why was it a surprise that Jesus spoke with a Samaritan woman at all? Like I said with the other question you asked, I mean, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. Yeah, I think it's more than that. It's not just that she's a Samaritan, but that we're talking about that she's a woman. Okay, yeah, that too, I guess. Yeah, you want to add anything to that, Jeremy, about the culture and men speaking to women? Um, I, I think if you look at modern Middle Eastern culture, even today, you can see that there's a very high sensitivity toward uh, women being modest. And they even had, in biblical times, they had uh, societal rules about um, not even speaking to somebody who was not your husband, if you're a woman. Um, and and I think there's something else going on here with her uh, sharing a, the same drinking vessel. It, uh, whether they did it or not is a moot point, but the fact was Jesus asked her for a drink, and the only way that he could get a drink is if he put his mouth to a drinking vessel that she had also used or touched. And so there were, there were a lot of uh, Jewish sensibilities that Jesus was violating by engaging in this whole debate with her. And that's one of the things that, you know, I try and talk to women today is they always want to put modern American sensibilities about men and women and roles on the Bible times. And we can't do that. We have to understand that those were the cultures at that time. And Jesus is different. Uh, you know, what you said, Jeremy, about the culture of that time of men, just it was not part of their culture to really address women they didn't know in public. And Jesus does that. Jesus has female disciples. You didn't have that so much. <laughs> Jesus has the first people that he, uh, he appears to as resurrection as women. So uh, I just throw that out there to women today when they, they look at the culture back then and they try and put everything down because we're always supposed to be so enlightened now, but mm-hmm. we're not. Uh, Gabe, how did Jesus use that discussion about living waters or about water to talk about spiritual matters? Well, the, well, um, <laughs> giving her, him, she giving him a drink of water or would mean that it's earthly water and what he and what and she wanted the spiritual living water um that he offered to her and obviously she was thinking in earthly terms that this would be some miracle water that of course doesn't exist but that would make her never thirsty again and i mean who wouldn't want that right um but uh, obviously he's not talking about that um, he's talking about giving her eternal life in heaven and giving her faith and stuff. So, yeah, yeah, uh, giving her so, that's a good. Yeah, Pastor Zarling, could you give some examples of how you can turn a conversation 
uh, to discuss spiritual matters? How, because we can't all do what Jesus... I, I think the ideal would be, oh, let's just keep repeating Jesus' trick here. Uh, ask for a drink and then talk about spiritual water. Are there other ways we can do that? Yeah, I, you know, I was thinking of that too of... You know, I just visited a number of shut-ins this week, and you know, when you visit older people or sh- or being shut in, there's always a reason for them being shut in. They're they're elderly, uh, maybe they're ill or they've got injuries, uh, and so they always like to talk about those things, and which is good. And I'm there to listen. And then you know, it happened to be that the uh, devotion I was sharing with them was about. Uh, next week's gospel lesson of Jesus healing the blind man and dealing with suffering. And so, you know, when they're they're complaining, they're talking about their suffering, they say, hey, that's a good segue to what I want to talk to you about with this. Uh, we're blessed. We had a lot of visitors the last couple of weeks. And then just to call them up, I've got a couple of phone calls I need to make after we're done recording the podcast this evening and then talk to them and then go from... Well, and they're going to expect it. They're going to expect me to go from talking about their life and so forth to spiritual matters. Uh, so, so Jeremy, what is living water? We spent a time in talking about the Mandalorian and everything, but what is Jesus talking about with li- living water? And Gabe kind of touched on it. Uh, I, uh, I think you could think of it as Jesus himself. In, in one respect, that he is, uh, Jesus, it, baptism saves you, Jesus saves you, Jesus is baptism. Um, and, and even if you're not thinking of your baptism, uh, you, when you think of how you're saved, it's through Jesus. So um, he is the living waters himself. I heard another interpretation of this one time that I thought was pretty good, and that is that Jesus is actually the well, uh, and the water that he keeps pouring out of himself is forgiveness of sins. Now, I like that. Gabe, have you watched uh, The Chosen with your parents? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have. Okay. Do you, do you remember back, uh, I think this was the end of season one? I was, yeah, sorry, keep going. Was it the end of season one? That sounds right. Yeah, where he ends with the Samaritan woman? Yeah, yeah, I, I was immediately thinking of that. Yeah, and then season two opens up with the woman, and she's an evangelist. What? And I think the chosen did a very good, good job of displaying her first being despondent that she's rejected by the man she's living with because she wants to go live with another man. Jesus refers to that in the gospel, and then she's shunned by the people. And now, and then the chosen demonstrates. She's talking to everyone and saying, hey, Jesus is here. Come listen to him. What would have made this woman such an effective evangelist? Much like any, um, I don't want to say martyr, but, you know, living martyr, um, they have a story to go with it. And that's also, I'm sorry, when it comes to the chosen, like, I, I know all the disciple names. I just can never connect them to the right ones like the right actors so the one uh he he goes aside and asks jesus to heal him but he says no because there would be a greater show of faith um yeah that was a very recent episode and i think you are talking about little james yeah the the, the guy with the stick yeah the guy with the stick yeah and like 
Jesus in The Chosen said that you will do much more by saying, I have this, I have such a great faith that I don't need Jesus to heal me mm. because I, I believe that this is what he wants. This is what's good. And it's kind of the same with the woman when she's, when she has a story, but or sorry, I shouldn't say the same. It's the opposite with the woman because she has a story to go with. Yeah. And you know, it's like, um, it's something that you can tell others. Jesus gives you something to talk about. <laughs> but Yeah. Yeah. And when I was thinking of this, and you guys can add anything to of any kind of evangelist that you know, uh, this is not someone I know, but Gary, who's one of our members, and he does prison ministry, and he's been doing it for a long time. He's told a story to me a few times about uh, a gentleman that uh, he had ministered to in prison, and this is a man, gentleman's probably not the right word, since as a teenager he had killed his best friend over a girl and then chopped him up and put him in dumpsters all over the city. So not really a good guy. <laughs> not so gentleman. Not yeah, so he's not really a gentleman. And yet as Gary tells it God worked on this man in prison so strongly that uh, he wants to be a prison minister. And so what he did is he's in a regular prison here. He's there for the rest of his life. But he volunteered to be transferred to a pond in Wisconsin, which is a maximum security prison, because that was the only prison in the area that had the theological training for him to be a prison minister. And But he is that on fire for the Lord, as I see this Samaritan woman. So, God turns around the, the people who are the worst off to make them the best uh, tools of his gospel. I mean, you can look at Apostle Paul. Yeah. Um, the fiercest enemy of God's church ends up being the most uh, effective missionary for it. You want to get into the gospel lesson? I mean, the epistle lesson, Jeremy? Yes. The epistle is from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice confidently on the basis of our hope for the glory of God. Not only this, but we also rejoice confidently in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces patient endurance, and patient endurance produces tested character, and tested character produces hope. And hope will not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For at the appointed time, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. It is rare indeed that someone will die for a righteous person. Perhaps someone might actually go so far as to die for a person who has been good to him. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Gabe, Paul says here, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to have peace with God? You could look at it by peace in like a literal sense saying, you know, you're not angry with God. I mean, that's a good thing. Um, but it's also, so it's also, uh, I, I, I think of it as a, having a good, having, being on an, having a good understanding of him. Like, if someone is new to faith and is thinking, oh, there's so many rules and I I can't even start to make pieces of it. 
I would say having peace with God is saying, okay, I can understand this. My my faith is good. He saved, he, uh, he died to save me from my sins. And like even just having that knowledge is what I would consider being at peace with God. Well, I like what you said there about somebody new to the faith might think, oh, there's so many rules. But in fact, um, it, we're, our it, true Christianity is not based on the law anymore. It's not based on the rules. And so having peace with God means understanding that um, he, he's not a dictator. That's kind of what you were saying. He's, he's not just a lawgiver that constantly demands things of us. He's a loving father who has saved us through Jesus. Yeah, and what I was thinking about with being at peace with God is, again, one of the shut-ins I visited this week. She's there, got her oxygen machine on. She can't really leave the house too much, and yet she said it this time, and she says that every month when I visit her, that she's at peace, that uh, she she's just grateful to God that he's given her, well, her husband, to t- who takes really good care of her, and then the two of them together were bragging on their grandson who moved up from Tennessee uh, the last few months, quit his job, doesn't have a job up here, just to be able to take care of grandma. You know, and for a 20-year-old young man, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, and she is at peace no matter how poor her health is, and, and I think that's a great thing. So, Jeremy, this one's maybe a little tougher. What does it mean to stand in God's grace? You need to think of God's grace like a room, and it's actually a room that keeps getting bigger all the time. Um, and uh, it, it's not like you are in the room and then out of the room and you keep jumping back and forth. Uh, and, and that's kind of how we think of um, human grace. When, when somebody is gracious to you, when somebody's nice to you, you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, when's the next time that they're going to be in a bad mood with me? Or I better do, you know, I better work hard to keep myself on good terms with this person so that I stay in their good graces. And it, Paul's trying to say here, well, God's grace is not like that. It's not a uh, on again, off again kind of thing. It's a room and you're in this room that is constantly getting bigger so that it's, the the longer you stay in it, the harder it is to get out of it because it's just all God's love is always growing for you. Yeah. And I think the way I would, I would describe it is again, going back to the idea of living waters is it's, it's grace is not like we get, we take a bath once a week. It's like that we are in the rain shower, the living waters every day. Uh, every day we're in every moment because we're at peace with God because of his forgiveness through Christ. We're just being showered daily, uh, constantly. Uh, it, it's an example that I used with my teens in, in catechism class recently when I asked them about, you know, if if you died while you were arguing with your parents while you were driving and a car T-boned you, do you go to hell because you were sinning at the moment you died? Mm-hmm. And they go, no. I said, why not? And they said, because we're always forgiven through Christ, because we believe in Jesus. Said, that's it. It said that that's an image, or that's an idea of uh, standing in God's grace, being baptized daily for the remission of our sins. Gabe, is Paul crazy? Because how can a sane person seriously say he rejoices through his sufferings or rejoices in his sufferings? I mean, I can't. We were, none of us were there, so we can't technically say if he was <laughs> medically crazy. 
but I mean, there's a lot of, I feel like there's a few instances that I can think of where you'd be rejoicing and suffering. I mean, one of them is like when you work out, you're absolutely suffering because you're lifting all these heavy weights and it's terrible, but you obviously know what the outcome is and you're going to get stronger. And some other suffering in more biblical or spiritual sense, um, it could give you something, it could give you something to share with others. Um, it could, you know, like, ah, oh, I did this. I had to suffer through this because of my faith and I came out of it because God is great and he loves me. Yeah. And, and Paul talks to then about how suffering produces patient endurance, patient endurance produces character and character produces hope. Uh, the example I used again with my catechism students the other day was, we were talking about euthanasia and why that's a sin. And Why are we talking about young people in Asia? <laughs> not in Asia, youth in Asia. <laughs> uh, and why, why you wouldn't kill a disabled person, a, a an elderly person, a person who's suffering? Is what can you learn from that person? And that person might have. I said, imagine it's grandma, the great faith that she's going through, that she has this hope in God, even through everything else and but she doesn't get to that hope in salvation in Christ unless her character has been built up she doesn't have character unless she's endured a lot of suffering and you don't go through suffering unless you first received patience to get through it all you don't get to that place of peace with God hope with God unless you've gone through all of that you want to add anything to that Jeremy yeah Gabe you made me think of a passage that I just shared with a, a homeroom this past week that I I, I'm the substitute for the homerooms. Whenever a teacher can't be at their homeroom, then I go in and I'm the substitute. And I always try to share a verse of the day with them. And this was one that, uh, Gabe, you just reminded me of, Second Corinthians 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So if you're... You, you can another reason you can rejoice in your sufferings is because it gives you insight into how to help other people who are suffering. Hmm. So, Jeremy, what why does hope never put us to shame? First of all, you need to remember that this is the biblical definition of hope. This isn't uh, the earthly or American uh, meaning of hope where it, it's like, well, uh, I'm just going to stay optimistic and, and, you know, whatever happens, I'm just going to be cheerful and, and maybe, maybe, maybe it will turn out okay. There's a lot of iffiness in that kind of hope. Uh, this biblical hope is actually confidence. It's saying, even though I do not see this reality right now, I have words from God that tell me uh, that something is going to happen and uh, whatever, whatever the thing is, I have hope in that. It's, it's a confidence and I think um, maybe a good way to say it is you've got to be a good student of history. Uh, if you're a good student of history, you'll be able to see lots of examples. You'll have lots of evidence of how God has in the past delivered people. And then you will want to, then you'll be able to say, I can see that God worked this out for good in the past. And so I have evidence and hope. I'm confident that God will work this out positively now too so Gabe uh, Paul says 
that while we were still helpless, Christ died. What does he mean that while we were helpless? I would say it's most it's uh, being unbaptized, not having faith. Um, when you were when you were an infant, when you were physically helpless and also spiritually helpless, um, and then of course when you were baptized, you became helped uh, with your baptism. Okay. Yeah, that we can't do anything for our salvation. Jeremy was talking about that with the difference between the Mandalorian's baptism and real scriptural baptism. So then, picking up on that, Jeremy, what does it mean that Christ died for the ungodly? Well, see, I was gonna, I was actually gonna make an analogy with the oh. Mandalorian there. That, okay. Uh, when he was down at the bottom of the living waters after he fell in or was pulled under, and uh, Bo-Katan was rescuing him, he was helpless. And she uh, truly did something good. She didn't have to leave him there. She didn't have to save him. She could have just left him there. But uh, she that's a good illustration of helping somebody who's helpless. There you go. Yeah, and then Christ dying for the ungodly. That's, that's us. Uh, I use the illustration in teaching this of, you know, imagine a police officer coming upon an accident and the person... Uh, behind the wheel is stuck in the car and is unconscious and the car is on fire and yet the police officer braves everything goes and rescues him uh, pulls the guy out of the vehicle and and saves his life except that person is just unconscious now imagine that Christ is doing that pulling us out of uh, the fires of hell and we're not unconscious we are uh, consciously fighting against him because we're sinners. You know, we're, uh, you know, it's something, I don't know, Gabe, you were a life, uh, a lifeguard, right? Life person, yeah. Yeah, I was. Yeah, a life person, a lifeguard. What do they tell you about saving someone who is drowning? Well, they tell you a lot of things, but one <laughs> of them is uh, you, you, you really... Most of the time, you can't ever tell when they're drowning. Okay, but can you can you rescue someone when they're thrashing around uh, and everything? You could, yeah, you could, but you have to. You kind of just have to stay calm because otherwise, you'll be a victim yourself. Um, and you got to know exactly what to do. Yeah, I I don't know. I'm not a good swimmer, but I do know you know that person that's thrashing and fighting against you. You you really it's hard to save that person. I also took some lifeguard training and did some lifeguarding, and I think what he's getting at is that uh, what do they did, did, you, did they ever tell you in training that somebody who's thrashing and is threatening to make the lifeguard into a drowning victim along with mm-hmm. him is sometimes you just gotta wait until they go unconscious. Yeah. Ooh, I've never got I I've never, they, never I ne- they never said anything about that to okay, me. Okay, well either either you gotta you gotta be a really good swimmer to like get around and I mean be under. And come up behind them so that they can't see you coming. Uh, or they said, you know, if they're if you're really exhausted or you're really having a hard time getting to them, you might need to wait until they actually, you know, uh, finally start to go under or ingest some water, and then and then when they are incapacitated, that's when it's safe for you to go and try to help them. They, know, they didn't. They didn't tell you that one. Huh? No. Yeah, I think maybe it's changed a little bit since my day. Well, where were you a lifeguard? Was it at a pool? Oklahoma City. Was uh, it a pool? Well, I learned from a, a community college, and then I was hired by 
YWCA and a, a racket club. Okay, I'm just imagining, Gabe, where where you are here in Racine, at the at the pool. If people are watching you, and you're just kind of, you know, swimming nearby and not doing anything. You're going to be in big trouble. Everyone's videotaping you and so forth. Different circumstance from you know 20 yeah, years ago before everybody had smartphones at the yeah. pool. Yeah. Yeah. But I but I imagine your example, Jeremy, especially out in the ocean, you know, you got to wait for that person to quit thrashing. And my whole point with asking that is we can't save someone when they're usually when they're thrashing and so forth. Christ does. We are ungodly. We're not He does say helpless. That's the the unconscious victim, but we're ungodly. We're fighting against him. Well, that was the last line. While we were still sinners, yeah. Christ died for us. Uh, and then he says, when does this happen? It happened at the appointed time, at the exact time that it was right for him to save every everyone. Anything else you guys want to bring up? I'm good. You guys you guys are really just giving me my material to talk about. So <laughs> I, I don't have anything for myself. <laughs> yeah, I'm all out. All right. Uh, before we close, I want to uh, encourage our listeners if you're on Facebook, uh, that I've got my book, and you can follow along with different uh, snippets of the book on Facebook of Resisting the Dragon's Beast. So then this is Michael Zarling with The Night the Lightnings Went Out in Georgia. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. 